This is the Equip Podcast from Cornerstone Church of Ames, a podcast designed to help you live a gospel-fueled and faithful life wherever Jesus has called you. Welcome again to the Equip Podcast from Cornerstone Church. My name is Mark Vance, and today I'm going to actually start a three-part follow-up to a message that I gave this past Sunday at Cornerstone Church. That message was out of Romans chapter 1 and verses 18 to 32. And what we looked at this past Sunday, so if you were looking it up online, it'd be Sunday, September the 25th, was the biblical teaching about idolatry and its manifestations in the world. And in particular, as part of that teaching, we addressed Romans 1, 26 and 27, which are verses which clearly speak about homosexuality as a sin, uh, delineated clearly in the Bible. And so we addressed that, but we said because of the nature of this question of homosexual practice in our modern world and the questions surrounding it, I wanted to do a couple podcast follow-ups. I'm actually going to do three of them. The rough breakdown of that is going to be answering questions that we've received, whether it would be from people or personal conversation, follow-up we've done with our staff in three main areas as follow-up. We're going to follow up on questions from the Bible. That's what we'll do this podcast. Second, questions from personal uh, experience. How do I help my friends? How do I love my family? And then the third one, questions on a societal, uh, social aspect. Why is this issue so present and potent for the church today? And why do I think it's not just a matter where we have to be doctrinally faithful, but it's important to speak to this because of the nature of implications it has for our broader church life in America today. So, Podcast one today, Bible questions. Podcast two for next week, we'll do personal questions. Podcast three, we'll do social, societal questions. And the hope is just to provide, again, a pattern of trying to be biblically faithful, trying to be personally kind, but also trying to be very clear. We don't have to choose a path where if we won't celebrate homosexual practice, we choose to hate people who would be there. The Bible is very clear about God's condemnation of sin. It is also very clear that God so loved the world, which is full of sinners, that he gave his son. And so we as Christians don't have to choose a path where we forsake conviction in order to be kind. No, you can be kind and hold the biblical convictions. I'm going to try to model that as best I know how, unpacking some frequently asked questions. I'm going to draw on one particular resource to help. And again, I want to just commend this to you. I think it is clear, fair, and good. The resource is What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality by Kevin DeYoung. It's a short book. It is well-researched, clearly written, and an excellent help. What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality by Kevin DeYoung. It is an incredible book. Russell Moore a former president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, wrote in his endorsement, every Christian should read this book. That's pretty high praise, and I think it is well-deserved. It's very, very helpful. It is very good. So, the first questions that we're going to wrestle through is a follow-up to Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, are the Bible questions. I'm going to start with this one. I'm going to read Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, so you hear it clearly. Romans 1, verse 26, begins by stating, For this reason God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. 
Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men, in the same way, also left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. Now, my contention is, and this is what we presented on Sunday at Cornerstone, that this passage is unescapably clear, that it falls in line with all other biblical texts in their universal condemnation of homosexual practice. The Bible, you can look cover to cover, says absolutely nothing good about homosexual practice, and every time that it is mentioned, it is seen in a negative light and is evidenced as sin. So, that's the way the Bible treats it. But the objection that some will put to the interpretation I put forward, that basically just the plain reading of Romans chapter 1 is correct, that the Bible condemns homosexual practice as sin. Some people's objection goes something like this. They say, yeah, okay, Mark, I get what you're saying. I get what you're saying. But I don't think it's condemning that type of sexuality. So, the argument will go something like this. They'll say this. What Paul is condemning is a perverse sort of homosexual practice. So if you read in some ancient uh, Roman and Greek uh, writings, you will see that actually often wealthy men would have four different lovers. They would have their wife as a sexual partner. They would have a concubine or a prostitute as a sexual partner. They sometimes would have a mistress as a sexual partner, and they would have a young boy that they kept as a sexual partner. That's a practice called pedastry. The sexual use of a young boy, often a servant boy, for an older man in Roman society. And the truth is that practice was widespread in uh, ancient Rome. It's a perverse practice. It's sexually degrading. There are other perverse homosexual practices that we read about in ancient Roman society. Uh, The temple prostitution practices that were common. There's all sorts. I mean, frankly, if you want to get into this, I don't recommend reading this book. It's called Homosexuality in Greece and Rome, a source book of basic documents. That book is nearly 600 pages in length. It's edited by a non-Christian classics professor. And simply put, it lists in Greece and Rome the texts that we have available that speak of homosexuality and homosexual practice. And what it will tell you is that they had all sorts of sexual practice in a homosexual way in the ancient world. So the pushback, as they say, Romans 1 is not forbidding monogamous, committed, loving, same-sex relationships or a same-sex marriage. Rather, Romans 1 is forbidding a disgraceful sort of passion, a shameless, horrible, nasty sort of thing. An abusive homosexual practice is forbidden. So, their argument is not that Paul is telling you you should have a homosexual or same-sex relationship, but just simply put, that it's not talking about homosexuality in general, but perverse homosexuality. This is one of the more common of the liberal arguments against this text. So, how would I answer that kind of text Bible argument? Which, by the way, one of the reasons that I'm a Addressing this is because my son, when we talked about this, showed me a TikTok that made this exact argument. So, just so you know, it's not just in liberal scholarship, it's in ludicrous TikTok. 
How would we answer that biblically? Okay, well, the first one is to say, um, if Paul had in mind that practice of pedastry, for instance, the sexual use of a younger boy by an older man, why didn't he use those words? I, I know that's a very simple argument, but when the argument is stated, it makes it seem like Paul is unclear in the words that he's using in Romans chapter 1. But here's the thing. The ancient world had words for all sorts of different sexual practice. It has words for pedastry. So if Paul had wanted to forbid a perverse sort of homosexuality, the point is Paul had words to use for that. He doesn't use those more specific words here. He actually just uses the more general ones, and in fact, he makes it abundantly clear. He tries to overemphasize this. There is a natural relation with women that men are to have. They left the natural relationship with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. It's almost like Paul is trying to do descriptive justice to this to make sure no one can misunderstand him. He doesn't use the words that talk about victimization and exploitation. He just uses the normal words, okay? So that's, that's part of the issue. The, the second issue is to say, sometimes the way people phrase this argument is they'll say, you see, Mark, it's only a condemnation of perverse homosexuality because they don't know our modern practice of same-sex loving union. They, since they, they couldn't reject that because they've never seen it. Well, that's also a bit of an ignorant argument, and I don't mean to sound condescending there. But simply put, if you were to go back to that source document I mentioned, Homosexuality in Greece and Ancient Rome, you would find they had all sorts of homosexual practice, including the practice of homosexual relationships, which were close to what we would think of as a lifelong same-sex marriage companionship. The ancient world has a category for those, okay? It does have that category. So when you, if you make the argument, Paul's rejecting uh, perverse homosexuality because he had never seen anything like loving homosexuality, the simple answer there is that's, that's a bit historically ignorant, okay? That's a bit historically ignorant. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a quote here from N.T. Wright on this. He says, as a classicist, that's a person who's very familiar with the ancient texts, I have to say, when I read Plato's Symposium, or when I read the accounts of the early Roman Empire in the early Roman Empire of the practice of homosexuality, then it seems to me they knew just about as much about it as we do. In particular, a point which is often missed today, they knew a great deal about what people today would regard as a long-term, reasonably stable relationship between two people of the same gender. That's not a modern invention. It's already there in Plato. The idea that in Paul's day, it was always a matter of exploitation of younger men by older men or whatever that Paul is condemning, well, of course, there was plenty of that thing then as there is today, but it was no, by no means the only thing. They knew about the whole range of options there. Okay, so the simple answer back is when people say it's not that kind of sexuality that Paul's talking about, is Paul had words that he could have used to describe that, se- that perverse practice of sexuality, and he didn't use those words. And secondly, um, 
a lot of times the kind of side of that argument is, well, Paul was couldn't reject, you know, same-sex loving union because he didn't know about it. And the problem there is if you read ancient texts, they certainly did know about that sort of practice. So that argument isn't well-grounded. It sounds scholarly, but it doesn't have very much actual historical textual basis. Now, one other major argument that people will make, this is probably the biggest one. That one is a bit more technical. This is the biggest one. They say something like this, Mark, there's only five passages of Scripture that talk about it, and it kind of feels like a side note. I mean, maybe Romans 1 is more clear, but seriously, why are we yelling where the Bible whispers? The Bible just doesn't make that big of a deal about homosexuality. It rarely, if ever, mentions it. And so, since there's not very few texts, it doesn't seem like we have a super clear thing. Why would we make such a big deal about this? Okay, so it's the, the argument is the Bible hardly ever mentions homosexual practice. There's only a few fragments, five or six or seven passages. Why are we making a big deal about this? Okay. Well, let's give a few arguments uh, within that, okay? The first one here is that when we try to understand what the Bible is teaching clearly, it is rarely the number of texts that is the most significant factor in that argument. Instead, what you ask is about a clarity and consistency of text. So if you say, the Bible hardly ever mentions it, therefore it's not important. Okay, well, that's not actually the way we read biblical moral injunction. What we look for is, for instance, not just number of text, but consistency. So if a Bible de- the Bible does mention an issue, what does it say about it each time it speaks of it? Is there a consistency even between Old and New Testament that, that crosses the covenantal lines? It, another thing we do working on how important a moral injunction is, is we look for the clarity of the texts. How clearly does the Bible address this? Is it clear? Is it false? And then another major factor is we look at how has the church read this throughout history? In other words, if the Christian church between its Protestant and Catholic divisions, has not always read a certain text a certain way, then we have greater grounds to say it may be more or less clear. In the case of the texts regarding homosexuality, what we have is not just an abundance of number of texts that makes the case, but an abundance in the consistency with which the Bible treats the issue of homosexuality, okay? In every instance in the Bible, from beginning to end, in both Old and New Testament, every time homosexual practice is mentioned, it is always condemned and it is never applauded. It is always seen only one direction. By the way, this is an accepted interpretation by nearly every revisionist liberal scholar I know. Okay, so I'm going to read a quote here. This is Kevin DeYoung's book lists this. It's from the gay Dutch scholar Pim Pronk, who, after admitting that many Christians are eager to see homosexuality allowed for in the Bible. You see, in other words, Pim's saying, look, it would be really helpful if the Bible allowed for this, because culturally, we want it to happen. But here's what he states plainly. He says, in this case, that biblical support is just lacking. Wherever homosexual intercourse is mentioned in Christian scripture, it is always condemned. Rejection of homosexuality is a foregone conclusion for the Bible. Okay, 
That's important, because that's not a Christian saying that. That's a liberal, homosexual activist scholar. What's he telling you? If you want support from homosexuality, you just can't go to the Bible to find it. He's making the point I'm making. When people say the Bible hardly ever mentions it, the point here is whenever it does mention it, it's incredibly clear and it only goes one direction, namely to the condemnation of homosexual practice as sin. The Bible always speaks that way. The second thing we should say is that just because the Bible doesn't speak often does not mean the Bible doesn't speak clearly. For instance, the Bible speaks very, very little about the practice of sexual relationships between humans and animals. There are a couple random mentions in Leviticus. There's very little in the New Testament. Is that an issue where we should say, hey, the Bible's not screaming about this. Why would we make a big deal about human sex with animals? No. No, 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 no. Why, why would we say that's clearly wrong? Because the core argument the Bible makes about sexuality is not in the texts that explicitly forbid a certain sexual practice. The core argument the Bible makes about sexuality is the pattern that God lays down in the created order. He created man and woman in his image. In Genesis chapter 1, this pattern followed through in Genesis chapter 2. Thus, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. The two become one flesh. God's pattern laid out in the very first pages of Genesis then carries through as the normative moral standard. One man, one woman for life inside of marriage. That is God's design. What we find when we look at homosexual behavior or sexual relationship between a human and an animal is that anything that deviates from the pattern in Scripture is always condemned, always, and never endorsed in any way, shape, or form, whether that is homosexual practice or even something like having more than one wife. People will use this argument and say, well, look in the Old Testament. There there are Old Testament characters who had concubines and wives. The question to ask when you read the narrative is not, did they have them, but what happens when they do? Does it ever go good for anyone with multiple wives in the Bible? No, it's always terrible, which is the way in Hebrew narrative you make a moral point. You show people that the wages of sin is destruction. That's the way the Bible treats homosexuality and sexual sin in general. It's not a matter of indifference. Here's a third thing to say. If the issue is that the Bible rarely mentions this, then sometimes people say, so that that means it it should be treated in the category of Romans kind of 13, 14, 15, where it's just a disputed matter. So what you believe about this, you keep to yourself between you and God, and different Christians can see this different ways. Well, okay, here's the problem with that. Sexual immorality is never a matter in the Bible of indifference in the same way as the examples in Romans 14 and 15, which are food laws and like holy days, uh, special days. It says, whatever you believe about those things, it's not that big of a deal. Don't tear down the kingdom of God for matters of food. But that is never the way the Bible treats sexual immorality. It says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, 9 to 10, that those who are sexually immoral, men who sleep with men, won't inherit the kingdom of God. That is not a disputed matter text. Okay, so the simplest thing we can say here to the Bible hardly ever mentions homosexuality is to say the Bible is incredibly consistent in every time that it does mention it. And friends, that has been the interpretation of the Christian church through every branch of the Christian church, not for a few years 
but for millennia. What's happening today with these biblical questions is not actually a new revolution in biblical scholarship. What's happening today is a new revelation in social moral norms. Because it is increasingly unpopular to hold to a traditional biblical viewpoint on sexuality, people are coming up with increasingly creative ways to try to manipulate the biblical text to say what they would like it to say. The simple problem with that is very simple. It just doesn't say that. Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, from a biblical textual argument standpoint, is very clear in the Bible's rejection of homosexual practice. But I'm going to go back to where we ended our sermon on Sunday and remind all of us this. It doesn't only single out homosexual practice as the sin above all other sins. It goes on to say people who don't acknowledge God aren't just filled with homosexual lust. They're filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. Envy is a sin. Murder is a sin. Quarreling is a sin. Deceit is a sin. Malice is a sin. Gossip is a sin. Slander is a sin. I could go on. The point is, the Bible is not a book about homosexuality and against homosexuality only. The Bible is a book about a holy God, a holy God whose standards of righteous holiness all of us have broken in our sinful idolatry. And so when the Bible speaks with clarity, we don't have the permission to rewrite it. That's not the stance we should take. We shouldn't try to align biblical teaching to, to what our culture says. Instead, we should repent. We should align our hearts to what our holy God calls us to. Own the sin that we've had and cast ourselves on the mercy of Christ. I hope you'll turn, tune back in, by the way, the next couple of weeks as we try to answer more questions. This one was about some biblical questions about Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Next week, we're going to talk a little on the personal side. How do we navigate the dynamics of relationships with people we love? And then finally, we'll talk a little about the social implications of this in the world we live. I hope all of this is just helpful to giving us strength as Christians to live as a faithful presence in the world in which God has put us.